Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Allison Behorn, and I am the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network Project Coordinator at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and I am here with Zach Warren. Do you want to say some stuff about you, Zach? So uh, I'm Zach Warren. I'm a, a clinical psychologist here at Vanderbilt um, and um, have been uh, um, involved with the Vanderbilt Community Center's Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders for a number of years, and along with Allison, have been um, leading um, the Aut uh, Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network project here in Tennessee since we started in, remind me when we started, Allison? I believe 2015. 2015 or thereabouts, right? And yeah. we didn't know what we were getting into when we started this, did we? We had no idea. <laughs> So what did we think we were getting into when we, we applied to this? And we use the term Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, but people just refer to it in short as ADAM, right? The ADAM Network. Yes. Um, um, do you remember I, why we, we thought about uh, this and, and, and how we ended up where we are today? Okay, so if memory serves, we thought about joining because it's a very important um, project, right? This is one of the most cited <laughs> pieces of um, literature in autism research, right? Because it is the prevalence number. So it, it's a very in, important for our work and it's a very interesting project to be a part of. I think when we joined, we assumed <laughs> that the, the methods were very different than they ended up being. So that was a very naive of us. What is your recollection? Yeah, I mean, I think so, you know, for folks who um, who have been involved with autism research, um, you know, almost every study or every grant or every announcement tends to put out, uh, you know, the statistic of how autism, how common autism is, right? And so I think when I started in 2006 um, at Vanderbilt, the number um, was one in 150, and that was a big sort of jump and, and we were seeing and, and, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or the CDC, which we'll talk about a bunch here, had, I guess in, in 2000, so 21 years ago, launched this ADAM network because there were reports of very high prevalence um, in certain communities. I think New Jersey was one of them and there were some other yes. examples and they really, um, were able to advocate for the funding and support to help understand how common autism was, characteristics of individuals with autism and intellectual disability as well, and, and cerebral palsy over time too. And so I think we saw this number coming out every couple of years in my thought, I, I think, you know, at the Kennedy Center, we have been fortunate to have access to some pretty impressive data sources and we have like big community partners, right? So I think we've been working with the Department of Education. That was the you know, very beginnings of, of Triad. I think before you and I were here, were really some contracts to think about providing training across the state and receiving support from the Department of Education. We've had wonderful relationships with them for decades. And also Vanderbilt you know, has invested in these massive you know, 
um, electronic medical record structures too, right? And really has kind of led the way in thinking about designing systems to leverage um, those records to conduct meaningful research. And I think you and I thought, we'll click a couple buttons, we're going to be able to come up with numbers here in Tennessee yes. to better help, you know, our community understand how common this is and what sort of capacity we need to be building um, to really kind of uh, uh, rise to, to, to the need of support. And that's not really what happened at all immediately, if I remember. You remember correctly, sir. Um, <laughs> it's not what happened. We, we discovered um, quickly that that is not how the methods worked. But I think what is very interesting and important to note for these numbers coming out now is that the methods have shifted. Yeah. Um, Zach, what do you think is most important that we can share with the audience about that shift? Yeah, I think for me, and it's probably just sharing what we learned along the way, right? We learned that in order to come up with those numbers the, that the CDC was putting out over years, they were literally pulling records, right? And combing through them. They would go to schools. They would have to get permissions and access to go in to be able to kind of look at student records and pull out information. They would go into um, clinical records across um, different sources, do the same thing, pull and abstract information. And then, you know, when we started, I think we didn't realize the level of detail of information that was pulled out. And once it was pulled out, we had uh, needed to build a team of experts who could review all that information and go through you know, a very specific protocol to determine whether or not this was a case or not, or if it fell, you know, kind of an indeterminate sort of uh, land. And that took a lot of time, um, energy, resources, and it was probably pretty necessary when folks weren't as aware and weren't documenting, I think, autism in ways that we're more likely to do now. And I think our involvement in the network, we've seen the shift uh, towards how can we do this um, with more efficiency? Can we actually use administrative data sources or the codes that exist in, in records in sophisticated ways to come up with those numbers versus going through those records? And I think, yeah, I, I think the big story tends to be each time we see a jump in terms of numbers and, and people really want to know why, right? Like why, I mean, I think how do you answer that question when people kind of say like, well, why, why did the number jump to one in 44, which it is now in the U.S. and, and also in Tennessee? Um, and I think you probably had to answer that question several times over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's very complicated, right? Isn't what we say? There's no one, there's no one answer. Um, because I'm coming from the data side, which somehow I ended up in, um, I can really speak to the fact that we're collecting this completely differently than we have before. So there is no, no um, real metric there to measure against. But um, also, I would, I would like to say, I think we, as a site, Tennessee, has really contributed to the Atom Network in pushing them to start to collect things this way. Um, because it really um, is focusing in on what is actually happening in communities. Um, and by pulling those billing codes for autism and those special education eligibilities for autism, we're seeing who in this community actually has this diagnosis or classification, as opposed to the old method, which was combing through, pulling out specific 
um, criteria that met autism and making a call on case status. So not only is it more efficient, I think it it is more accurate. Um, now, maybe why why that diagnosis is more um, used right now is something you can speak to, Zach. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. And, with the, the, you know, our colleagues who've been doing this longer than we have within the network will also be very careful about their language when talking about this, right? Well, just, you know, they'll say the, the prevalence that was reported is higher than the prevalence that was reported two years ago. They won't necessarily use that language of increase, right? Because when you use that language of increase, everyone thinks, there's a cause or there's a reason or it was a true jump. There's something going on in our, uh, I, I think one of the things that are, are, are really intelligent and competent colleagues um, have hit on and using this term higher is that, you know, some of this is about method, right? Sometimes, you know, to come up with these estimates, the CDC asks, you know, different states to come up with numbers, right? In this report, it's 11 different states, right? And over time, those states sometimes might be looking at different areas, right? They might have different access. They might be, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why the actual sort of population that we're looking at varies and that ties into some of the difference that you see. What you just spoke to too, in terms of whether you have somebody comb through all the records, pull out all that information and then have a clinician review, versus looking at codes that exist within systems, you're going to end up with different numbers too. And so over the course of time, I think importantly, the CDC has been shifting methods as they uh, uh, give these numbers around prevalence. And so, you know, one of the biggest reasons I think uh, why we see numbers shift is those methods, right? And I think um, as this network has got better and better at better, right, at being able to have access to understand the right way of identifying um, many children, we see some of those numbers increase, uh, or, or say the numbers are higher, right? Higher. I need yeah. to take my lesson from yeah. that. Um, and I think, you know, there's also just a, been such a tremendous shift in terms of awareness and openness towards talking about autism within professional and lay community alike, right? That autism is something that, you know, I think uh, decades ago, wasn't within sort of, um, you know, a day-to-day -day experience. People might not read a story about, they might not see a TV show where, uh, you know, the main character is on the spectrum. They might um, really have very limited exposure. Um, and I think that's shifted dramatically. Um, and I, I think that shift also, you know, is in part one of the reasons why we see higher numbers now. Um, would you add to that, your, your other thoughts around sort of methodology and awareness? <clears throat> I, I agree. I think it's important um, for people to understand not only um, have whole states shifted over time, communities within the states have shifted. We don't actually do surveillance across the state for this. There are small different communities. It's not meant to be an, um, an estimate of the whole US population. It is meant to be, this is what's going on in these specific communities. Um, it, it often gets pulled as a number headline and I understand why, but I think it's important to know that. I think it's important to know that, yeah, um, as you mentioned, 21 years ago, we probably needed to be combing through the records and looking for specific features 
features like poor eye contact and repetitive behaviors. But um, but I think it is, we're moving towards a better way to capture what's going on in these communities. And part of it is awareness. I think, um, I'm hoping you can talk to Zach, the change we're seeing in race um, yeah. with the diagnosis, because I think that is part of this conversation as well. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to let you talk on that for a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the, the feeds really nicely off of what you were talking about in terms of methods and, and, and understanding sort of the numbers as reported, because you know, two of the highlights from this report were really sort of um, thinking about or, or two reports, right, actually. So I think it's important to note that, you know, historically, um, this Adam network had focused on eight-year-olds exclusively, because at that time, I think there was a, an idea that by a time a child had reached eight years of age, there would either be a health record or an educational record such that you could look through it to make a determination. And I think um, as our systems have pushed more and more towards early identification, the network has expanded, right, to looking at four-year-olds. And this was the first time in our state we looked at um, four-year-old or published four-year-old sort of, sort of data along with it. And one of the big sort of highlights and, 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 and talking points was really about there's a larger percentage of young children who are now being evaluated at early ages, right? And, you know, that has been one of the big action points um, that folks talk about in terms of why is this data important? Well, one of the reasons has been for us to build systems that we might be able to identify and support individuals and families at the earliest reasonable point in time. The other big finding was really uh, related to uh, historical differences in reported rates of autism across different uh, racial and ethnic groups. And so, um, you know, for many years, um, there was a pretty significant difference between um, white kids and um, Hispanic and African-American children as reported out. And this uh, time in reporting rates, um, there wasn't that difference at eight years of age, right? And so people um, have asked questions about, well, what does that mean, right? Okay, so if we're not seeing a difference um, in terms of the, the, the number of children or a statistically significant difference in the context of this methodology uh, between those groups, what does that mean about, you know, health disparities writ large in autism, right? Versus this idea of, what does this mean about what we're seeing in communities and the communities under study too, right? Because I think you've actually been doing some pretty interesting work in, in taking this beyond just the Tennessee community that we look at, which is relatively small, right? We look at 11 counties that either are, you know, touch sort of Nashville and the metro area or close to it, right? But we aren't really kind of looking across the entire state, right? We report it as the Tennessee prevalence, but it's really the, you know, 14 school districts in, in, in 11 counties in Tennessee. Um, but you're, you're currently kind of um, taking a broader look, kind of say like, not just this community, but let's think about other communities. Yes, um, we are. We received supplemental funds. The CDC is interested in can we expand across a whole state um, now that we're making more efficient <laughs> strides in capturing this number. And so um, Zach was awarded extra um, money to be able to look into this. And so we have, and what we find um, is it's really different stories across the state. Yeah. Um, Zach, you've spoken to, it's like three different stories coming out yeah. of our state, which is at least, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not surprising knowing 
what we know about the state, but um, I think it is important to think about as these systems move forward, we, we still need to think about how are we collecting this data? What are the sources of the data? Um, to speak to what we were talking earlier about the change in race um, prevalence, is this just um, because of awareness and methodology? Is this a true difference? Um, I think it's important to note for people that the old methods of combing through a comprehensive developmental report um, in order to get case status, um, that that is, that was um, something that would probably lean towards the white population of having access to those providers um, and the resources to go and seek out multiple developmental evaluations with which we could compile. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Zach. It's really interesting, right? Because you know there is this positive bent that I think I see in the numbers of saying, like, I, I think within our community, there's been investment energy programs that I really do think on a population level have helped see some differences in terms of the number of children who might be evaluated early, uh, providing um, you know better and more equitable access across groupings, right? So I do think there are probably some of those shifts that are happening. But when you look in those other communities in the state, um, you're seeing historic disparities play out in a really powerful way, right? So there's this idea to me that there is potential for making positive change in a really complex sort of health issue, but we still have a ton of work to do. Yeah. And to your point, the, the old method really relied on folks having access and um, access and, and uh, equitable care within that access too, right? You know, we know there are just differences based on race in terms of how kids are classified and treated in schools, right? Not necessarily specific to autism at all, right? But the historic Adam methods really said like baseline, you got to have access to this report or we weren't, we're not even really going to count you, right? And what we're seeing is like, oh, maybe if we take out what is a true uh, racial disparity in terms of access, we actually uh, aren't going to see that difference in the number. And that's even more of a call to action to me, right? It's Absolutely. Like, wow, your system yeah. has really built in this systemic uh, racism, which, which isn't... Um, isn't isn't uh, an easy thing to shift, right? So you know it, it, they're complicated numbers, but I, I do see I do see uh, um, some hope within those numbers, but also not wanting folks to interpret it that our job has been done. Yes, right? and, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's even really powerful in our our early identification numbers too, in, in terms of saying like, you know, when we look at at younger children, so our four-year-olds, right? Our systems seem to be able to provide more access to um, early services, but there's still huge differences in terms of where we would want that to be. And I worry that, um, you know, identification is one thing, but support is a different one, right? And quality support is a different one altogether. Absolutely. And so I think there's still a lot for us to work on in terms of feeling like, families are not just being, you know, receiving a diagnostic code or, you know, having a classification, but are, are getting early quality service. And, and I do think there are improvements there, but I think the numbers also document, boy, work to do. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, in that other smaller project we've attempted to do within the system is 
looking further into the records of um, those eight-year-olds that we identified that that are identified as African-American or Black and that did ultimately receive a diagnosis of autism and looking at their early well-child checks and kind of seeing what was that experience like. Um, and I think that's kind of the deeper work that we need to do to really just to sort of highlight how the work is not done yet. You know, there's there's still disparities and there's still things we can do to improve um, to improve access to care and to improve the whole um, experience for large groups of people. And and also, you know, are the categories that we use are insufficient for thinking about these complex issues too. I, I oftentimes think of you know poverty and geographic isolation as big big barriers as well too and and this report presents some um data that's really hard to understand yes. around uh ses um i don't know um what your thoughts are. It. Ah. <laughs> but this idea and i think our colleagues really introduced the methodology for trying to you know we don't individually identify children but we can map them by you know specific catchments to understand categories of um, uh, or, or, or socioeconomic indicators that are, are are highly correlated with the regions that they live in. And, and there is some data suggesting that, you know, actually children uh, from, from lower bands might get identified at, at, at higher rates, and, and which is hard for us to understand in the idea that, you know, oftentimes um, we think of, of families living in poverty as not having access. Um, again, I think this is probably one of those ways in which we need to view this as um, a, 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 a network of communities versus a nationally representative sample. Absolutely. Because right? I, I, I'm my hypothesis is that that, that the answer would still be very complex, but I think you might find a different one if you look at um, different areas. I think I think to me, I gave a talk on this. It wasn't about this, but it was about just for disparities and and how autism played into that and and different models for trying to think about addressing them. And I and I put up the you know map of the U.S. and highlighted each of the counties that was counted of, of a community. And you really see clusters in these major metropolitan areas that have prestigious autism programs, tons of research dollars or other supports, unique contracts, or you know, wonderful centers like the Kennedy Center or, or comparable ones there. And you think, well, is that really the way the story plays out across you know, all of those other uh, geographies, counties, and catchments? And, and, and my guess is, is no. no. I think these communities have something powerful to tell us about themselves and what that might mean for other things but at least the you know for me the the, the story around SES is a hard one to answer within in those those communities I think this is um leading well into what what would you say to people about the vast difference in prevalence across these different communities well see I wanted to ask you what do you think of the California number <laughs> Allison you know are we really getting to a point where we're thinking about you know an estimate that what is I forget the actual number is it one in 26 it. in California I mean one in 26 and one in 29 oh, okay. I know that but it's not our state right it's so not, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll um, look it up real quick <laughs> you know and, and that uh, you know so I guess I, I dodged your question by asking you about it so what do you think awesome um I think if I recall correctly, that is one county 
or not even a full county? Is it just San Diego County? Um, I'm going to have to look yeah. and see and pulling up the numbers now. Keep talking, keep talking. Because I will say that in my experience with these numbers, the smaller the population level that, that they are surveilling, the higher the prevalence, which is not shocking when we're talking about if we're in these little small urban areas with major autism centers. Yeah. Um, I think that there is also, right, really great uh, resources in California um, that are supporting people with autism and families with children with autism and are going to these centers um, and they are being counted. Um, the same is true historically in New Jersey, right? That it, they have, they provide a lot. Um, sometimes people would move there to New Jersey, right? To, to get these services. Um, also just like with all the systems that exist, now you're counting those people. Um, so I think, I think, I think that, that the number is accurate for what what they counted um, is that would that look the same across their whole state? Yeah, probably not. Because um, yeah. ours doesn't either, right? Nope. Like, I mean, yep, ours isn't going to look the same. And yeah, I mean, so the numbers range from one in sixty to the one in twenty-six, right? So one point seven percent, and that was uh, Missouri, to you know the three point nine percent of kids in in, in California, um, and. I think, you know, and it's hard, right, because the number when they've come out with one in 150 or when we, I should say we, it's a they, I need to own up to this process yeah, this right? yeah. for its benefits and, and uh, some of its challenges. But when we publish uh, one in 44, that's snappy, right? And that gets attention. And, um, you know, and, and in part, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to drive a, attention to how common autism is, the needs for support, the needs for capacity building. Um, but I, I think a better presentation of saying, you know, in communities in the U.S. are, you know, uh, often seeing, you know, uh, 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 numbers of children ranging from, you know, 1.7 to, or, you know, two to four, right? And then that makes a little bit more sense versus saying like we have the truly identified one in 44 and, and, yeah. and they're just different pressures for why it comes out in that way. Um, and you're right. I think there may be communities where that number is going to be higher than the one that, that, that and our colleagues in California did a tremendous job. They joined this network and were able to kind of use systems to, to really accurately describe such a high number in their own backyard. I, I think there are probably communities where you'd see higher numbers and there are probably communities where you're very much using the same methods. You would use lower, uh, see lower numbers as well. Um, and, it, and, and that's one of the reasons too, I like talking about the range is because I think when we see these differences, you wanna say like, well, did something happen there? Or, you know, I mean, I, I colloquial joke, is there something in the water no. there, right? No. You know, and, and it, it probably, is not right. I mean, I think we, you know, one of the fundamental questions I think of this work is like, you you did that wonderful job of talking about higher versus increase back, but isn't there fundamentally some portion of increase in how common autism is in, you know, we usually hedge and say like, well, you know, our data lets us do higher. I actually believe that there's probably a true increase. And I don't know what that true increase is. I don't know the exact percentage of it. I think it's probably 
the minority or a, a small portion of the explanation of why the number is higher. But there are some characteristics on a population level that you would think about, like uh, uh, contributing some increases in certain communities and for certain reasons, too. Um, I don't know if you uh, have a different answer for that, Allison, or not. I, I think I do. I think, um, I mean, you and I have been doing this for a while now. Yeah. Um, not only this particular work, but been uh, in autism at the Kennedy Center for 15 years, even though you don't have your box to prove it. Um, you have 10. <clears throat> okay, good. Um, I think we... I mean, the same conversation came up when we shifted from DSM-4, so the way we classify changed, right? Um, that changed what that shift to DSM-4 was kind of in our realm, too. Anyway, we've shifted the way we... 2013 is yeah, if I recall correctly. We shifted <laughs> the way we are classifying things multiple times, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that awareness really does um poll for us to understand certain children in a different way than we would have 20 years ago um yeah. and and notice what sorts of um vulnerabilities exist and and what the needs are in a school setting um i think i think most of this is driven by awareness um and acceptance I think it's really, really interesting to think about. And, and I, so there's no doubt that is happening, right? I think there's no doubt that that's there. The question mark and what's not told is, is this other piece of it. And we'd need to do a totally different study to be able to get to that. And then I think fundamentally underneath all of this is just the, an, an, an importance of being transparent about what we're doing. And what we're doing is we're, or we're using a word, right? We're using this word autism um, or, you know, and in fact, we, uh, our communities are, are struggling to understand what are even the right words that we should yes. use to think about autism. Is it an individual with autism? Is it autistic? Is it, you know, uh, uh, someone on the spectrum? What are the right way of classifying it? But fundamentally, all of those words are attempts to describe um, extremely diverse population um, in a, a population that shifts you know, on an individual level and a group uh, level over time too, right? And so um, this idea that there is this one thing or this one cause or this, you know, one way of understanding an individual or one way of diagnosing an individual is somewhat illusory, right? And so Absolutely. it's a good attempt, and the, but, but oftentimes it's fundamentally lacking and really truly being able to appreciate the diversity of individuals where we attempt to, to use that term to help, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and I think that to me is the fundamental sort of reason of why you can never really truly understand prevalence. You will never truly be able to understand a single cause, right? That, that this spectrum is, you know, a, a piece of human development, right? And I'm not sure we really understand the boundaries of, of that piece right now. And they've been a little bit fluid over time. Absolutely. And I think that's a whole other podcast yes, that we could is. talk about. <laughs> is there anything from the report that, that we didn't touch on that you think folks would like to know? Was there any, I mean, for me, it's really about, you know, seeing that, that number. I mean, uh, 
uh, of being able to speak to sort of the range of understanding this as a study of different communities, not necessarily a representative sample, of understanding that we've been doing it with different methodologies over time, that uh, the way in which we've been thinking about, um, you know, classifying individuals within and across the spectrum has changed. There are complex reasons why we see shifts in terms of our understanding of how autism plays out across different sort of traditionally uh, underserved groups. Um, there, uh, we still have a lot that we don't understand about equitable access to care and, and prevalence in, in broader populations that you will see shifts in communities, right? Um, with in, in investments towards care. Uh, um, those, those are really sort of the big messages that I took away. What, what are we missing telling people about the report? I think um, a message that that you've consistently given and I really appreciate and have echoed is just what what is the basic we can take away from this is just it is unbelievably common. Unbelievably like, common. Yeah. It is a com it is a common disorder yeah. and we need to make sure we have systems yeah. that can can care for individuals at, at, at every age of development. And yeah. since we don't know how any individual will change over time. Um, we, we just need to have many resources available for families. Um, and I, I think that's the key message is. Yeah, that's what I come back to again and again of just saying like, you know, whatever it is within that range or yeah. beyond, whatever we're defining our term, we just need to fundamentally understand that autism is a very common part of human experience. Absolutely. At one in 44 or one in 60 or one in, one 20, in 26. Right? Yeah. You're going to just think about how many uh, kids within a particular school or a uh, church community or, you know, uh, later in terms of thinking about employment settings and all of those facets of life that we need to be thinking about ways of um, promoting true sort of in in inclusion or, you know, one in 44. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And um, it's always nice to get to talk with you about this. I, I think, you know, um, you know, when, when you kind of spend the time that we've spent with it, you kind of learn some of these subtle things that um, we want to be able to tell people about yeah. beyond sort of the, it's this number, right? So I, I really appreciate getting to talk to you about it. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.